Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. But more than just our brains, but also more than just our hearts, you know? The characters go to a body of water. They're about to be reborn. And that determines what's hurting, but it also determines where the healing is. I want to back out of this cringe rabbit hole. And you're watching this stream of thoughts go by. Let go. All right. So my reading for this week covered, what was it? Um, sleep disorders. Ooh. Uh, um, what was it called? Evacuation disorders, which is poop and pee. <sighs> um, then it also covered, what was the last one? Oh, sexual dysfunctions. Um, so a lot of, a lot of poop and pee and groin talk. That's quite this, yeah, quite this the week grouping. in my reading. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not really talking about any of those because <laughs> in a side book we had to read, um, they, they talked about this topic that I've been thinking actually a lot in my head recently. Um, oh my goodness. I'm sorry. I'm Mr. Popular over here. <laughs> Can't even start my podcast without getting a text message. Um, sorry about that, listeners. I'm going to give you my undivided attention. It's um, quite the ringtone you got. I, I, <laughs> I've been thinking about – if you're a Christian and you're listening, you'll probably understand this. If not, um, don't worry. I'll still talk about it, uh, and I think it will still be very applicable. So in this book I was reading, it was talking about – uh, the therapist's role in addressing the multi-created, like the multifaceted way in which humans were created, um, meaning the uh, physical, the mental, uh, the relational, and the spiritual, like components to being a Christian. Um, and they they use the verses that talk about. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And mm -hmm. they talked about like, you know, address the verse that addresses the spirit, the soul, and the body. Um, and I was actually thinking about that because a couple weeks ago I was I was listening to a podcast on like the importance of meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, is a it can be either an irreligious or a religious practice, depending on how you view it. But they were talking about the importance of forming this sense of like congruence or like wholeness. And this one like expert meditator said that in the beginning, um, when you start to meditate, I'm not a pro, by the way, I am a student uh, and I'm also not a pro meditator. So don't once again, this is a little warning. Uh, don't hear what I say and go, ah, that's what meditation is. Um, but from what I heard, this guy was talking about how when you start meditating, it's as if you are sitting there as an observer and you are the observer. Like that's how you identify and you're watching this stream of thoughts go by. But the stream of thoughts is separate. And mm -hmm. as you get better and better at meditation, you realize that there is no divide between the observer watching the thoughts and the thoughts themselves, like they are all the same person. And how for many of us, we have this experience of like we're, we're, we're a thing living right behind the flesh of our face. Like we sit behind our eyes and look outwards. But, but really like we are like this whole body. And I know that that's – like even the book I was reading did a good job at saying that like there is obviously overlap that all these things wrap into each other. Like the physical affects the mental, which affects the, you know, spiritual, which affects the relational, which affects the mental, which affects it, it's it's all interconnected. But I think that I, I think I stole this from this podcast I was listening to. I think that we tend to. Even though we talk about like, hey, here's all these different parts and they are connected, I think lay people still tend to take that and 
say, oh, all these parts are separate and here's the proof for them and I should treat them separately. Um, the like and the, I was talking to a. Fr- OK, no, no, I was I was going to say something different, which is the sacred and secular divide. But you're talking about something slightly different. You're talking about, you know, like the mind and body and relationships, kind of those divisions of ourselves. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Like I think I that we will. There. No, you're fine. I think that there's an understanding in our culture, whether you're Christian or not, like in, in just culture in general, that these different parts exist, that there are mar- multiple things that make up who we are. However, I think that gaining that understanding hasn't always made us a more complete individual. I feel like it's made us a more splintered individual. Like I was talking Mm. to a friend just earlier this week and he was talking about like, man, my emotions just keep like, uh, I don't know how exactly he phrased it, but he was essentially saying like, Hey, like my heart or my feelings is getting really, they're getting upset. They're, they're getting flustered. They're getting like riled up. And, and he literally said something to this line. Um, I, I keep trying to get my head to tell my feelings what to do, Mm. but it's not working. And I ended up kind of saying back like, Hey, maybe it's not working because as much as you're trying to tell your head to tell your heart what to do, maybe your heart's trying to tell your head what to do. And if you don't at least hear yourself out, you won't be able to like make a a fully whole decision, you know? And you, you still might be like, okay, I've heard myself out. I've addressed those emotions I'm still not going to do what they say, but if you pretend they don't exist, it creates this like weird congruence where you're like not really listening to yourself incongruence. It creates an incongruence. Um, So I felt bad because in my discussion post, most of my most of my post was on was on that kind of idea. Um, It wasn't necessarily super focused on like the disorders themselves it was just kind of on how, you know, I appreciate the knowledge that the book is bringing forward. I think everybody does. But like I said specifically for like the sexual dysfunctions, like erectile disorder and stuff like that, like these are even like the DSM says they're very interlinked. Like depression and anxiety can have an effect on the body and the body can then inversely like how it is reacting can have an effect on you know, someone's mental state and both of those can deal with someone's relationship. Um, and like, yes, you need to address the parts individually, but also like maybe as a clinician, it's helpful to know where that overlap is. I think I just see a lot of people in like the lay person level, which is like the common person level, the people who are just hearing this like from a talk or hearing this from like uh, a video on the internet that there's multiple parts in themselves are maybe running with the idea of, oh, like, cool, there is multiple parts of myself. I just need to pick the part I care about most right now and make that in control of everything. Like, oh, I'm a multi-part being? Well, like, yeah, I just need to tell my body to stop being so weak, even though I only give it six hours of sleep a day and drink, like, 17 cups of coffee. Like, I need to not listen to that because my mind knows I have a very busy schedule. Or, like, oh, like... Yeah, I know that I'm a multifaceted being. That's interesting knowledge. That's more stuff I can do with my mind so I don't have I can be like reasonable and and be an intellectual and I can think my way through my feelings and not having to do that. And of course, like feelings is the same thing. Like I'm probably more on that end where it's like, "Oh, yeah, my feelings are a very important thing. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to worry about like what it does to my body. I just I feel this way I'm going to do it." Um but really I think that there needs to be more of like an understanding even at like the bottom level too, that like, no, like you are all of these things. And that's where I think um, I've been trying to, I, I, you know what? No, honest time. I keep saying I need to do more meditation. Um, it just hasn't been happening yet. So maybe I should practice it too. And I'll report back on how it's going just to exist still and silently for a little bit. Yeah. Well, Okay, so there's a couple ways I could respond because I'm interested in a lot of what you're saying. I think, though, 
that in my experience, um, okay. So you said that defining the different parts of us a lot of times serves mm-hmm. to like make us incongruent, you know, to kind of like, I don't, I don't remember exactly how you said it actually, but what I've observed personally and, and tell me if this lines up with what you're saying. I think a lot of times when people point out the different parts of themselves, it's sort of to select the most important one. Like, yeah. so however, however you, you cut yourself up, if you're like, oh, well, my mind is this and my emotions are that normally those people are like, okay, so let's pick the mind and emotions just don't matter. Or if you if you do it yes. like spirit, soul, like and body. In dividing them up, there's yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm cutting you off now. Go ahead. Well, so I think what you're saying, if I'm hearing it right, is not that it's bad to be aware that you do have different parts, but where people maybe get off track is when they are like using that knowledge to kind of pick one part of themselves to pit pit parts of themselves against each other. Yes, to assign favorites and to pit parts against each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, gosh, there is in, in one of the literary theories, I forget which one it is. It talks about like the, the conscious, the unconscious, the subconscious as like different layers and then even I've heard people talk about art as like the pre-conscious, which okay, I'm getting a little bit off of what you're saying, but this is what it makes me think of is uh, I've wait, heard wait. quick question. Are yeah. you, are these writing perspectives like when you're writing from the perspective of a character or what, what is subconscious, unconscious, free conscious? Uh, so no, it would be more like criticism. So more if you're evaluating a text through these lenses you might identify Mm. but so uh, gosh i hope i don't mix them up the conscious that one's obvious it's what you're conscious of what you're aware of you were kind of saying with meditation like you come to like the first layer is you realizing all these different thoughts you have and then yeah like your conscience would be the person sitting on a stream like that's your conscience and you're watching the thoughts stroll by yes. and you're saying, Oh, look at these thoughts. Then the I'm okay. I'm Googling unconscious versus subconscious. Um, because one of them is like, you're not conscious of it, but you could be. And the third is, um, you, you won't be conscious of it. Like it's so, it's so far deep that, okay. Yeah. So, um, my guess is going to be subconscious. Hold on. Play along at home, listeners. Yes. Which one do you think is which? Subconscious. Uh, I, I think I think <laughs> I think subconscious is could be aware of it, but aren't presently. And unconscious is will not be aware of it. Yes, correct. Let's go. <laughs> uh, unconscious. If you leave a comment, we'll mail you a prize. Yes. Uh <laughs> I mean, I suppose <laughs> if you want to drop your address where people can come find you. So true. Also a good point. The unconscious, like you said, that is where it's kind of so far deep that you're you're it's not going to occur to you why you are thinking the way you're thinking or what you're even thinking or it's not going to occur to you why you're having like a. a a stressful react, like a psychosomatic response to it because it's so far deep. And what I read the other day, uh, sorry, I feel like I'm kind of taking us on tangent, but uh, it was talking about art being pre-conscious in the sense of if you are in my case, like writing a song or if you're painting a painting or you're doing a movie or something, it, it might only occur to you later how much that thing actually reflects you in ways that you didn't even realize. And I I read Mm. that and I was like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. So that is really interesting. Yeah. And all of that to say, to get back to your point, 
like just to validate what you're saying is like, I do think that sometimes we try to really pit our mind against everything and say, we can just like Mm -hmm. grin and bear it and logic ourselves out of all of our problems. Like you were saying with your friend, but like sometimes your body is sending you very important signals. Like your body is, you don't want to, you don't want to overcome the feeling of my hand is on the stove and it hurts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're signals. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, so I think my main question, it's not an argument. I think my question is what, what I would look to fix is how can we give out this good knowledge in a way that doesn't cause people to automatically go, oh, there's different parts of me. Well, let me just pick my favorites and line them up in the order that makes most sense to me. Because um, I think the I think the interesting and like the, the life changing part of that information isn't, hey, these parts exist, and like you said, pit them against each other. But hey, these parts exist, and they're all trying to talk to you which is all of them together. Mm -hmm. Like you don't get to pick your mind and say, well, I am my mind. I am in your perspective, what you're saying with writing, I am my conscience. Like you don't get to pick that and ignore the subconscious and the uh, unconscious. Like you have to understand that you're all of those. Um, And you gets better as a person when you acknowledge all of them, like if you walk into a room and you're uncomfortable, like you're not going to really get better. You're either going to be in your mind trying to figure it out or being really uncomfortable. You're going to be in your feelings trying to like be like, what is it about? I just don't feel right. And you're going to be anxious. Um, maybe even spiritually, you're like trying to figure something out like on a bigger level. And, and try, maybe you're just really worried about that. But like it might be an unconscious, maybe even more physical nervous system thing. And if you don't like figure that out with yourself, which might also require your feelings and your mind, like that unrest might be a more consistent thing or might not lead to the effect it's trying to have on you in in hopefully a positive way, or you might not get to flip it off. Maybe it's an old unconscious, like, survival technique that's most of therapy like when you're dealing with clients it's like hey you learned to do this thing to help you survive or stay safe like when you were younger but now that you're older we need to turn that off um so i want to make sure i'm understanding the connection i guess so you're you're kind of saying that it can work in both directions like PTSD, for example, that is that's an example where what you just said, your body has learned a certain response and it's replaying mm-hmm. it. And we need to learn that, you know, effectively. uh I I guess I don't know how to say it's not that you're ignoring it, but you're trying to learn how to deal with it. I guess by saying that we're not in that situation anymore. Whereas yeah, the other, the connection you were drawing to, I think it was like the sleep disorder and like the sexual. And I forget what the third one was, but in those you're saying maybe it is just like a weird physical, uh, thing taking place but also let's consider that let's consider it holistically there might be other things going on that you're like disconnected from that are summoning these kind of responses in your body is that sort of it yeah it's both of them and i think it's very dependent on the situation and the person and it's also why like it requires that that individual to understand and kind of hear the conversations within themselves. Mm. Like going back to what you were saying about like the sleep and the sexual disorders, like that could be like, let's say it's someone with like erectile dysfunction. 
You didn't think you were going to be listening to erectile dysfunction today, did you, listener? But here we go. We're <laughs> I didn't going think to we were going to be talking worry. about it. <laughs> um, but let's say, like, let's say someone has that. That's going to cause um, potentially, potentially, uh, in their relational side, that's going to affect their relationships with others, or maybe it's going to keep them from forming close relationships with others. Uh, that's going to have an effect on their self-esteem, which could be seen maybe as a spiritual, you know, spiritual thing, like how they view themselves and their value as a person. That's going to affect their mind. It could increase their anxiety and depression. However, by decreasing anxiety and depression, that might have an effect on their physical aspect. By forging closer relationships, like this thing that will damage relationships by forming closer relationships, it it shows like there's recovery rates in that as well. So as much as like in this side, we can see damage go from one aspect to the other aspects, we can also see healing from the other aspects heal that aspect. Vice versa, you could have someone who's in a very anxious or stressed state of mind. Maybe there's been, maybe they were like laid off work. Maybe they had a, like a death of a significant other. That is going to also affect the physical nature of that person. So it can also go backwards. And then there's the example of PTSD too that I could go into, but I'll pause there in case you had any questions or anything you want to hop on. Uh, no, great, great use of the word aspect. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. So for PTSD, um, let's say someone got into a car crash in which the person that they were driving with died, not their fault, but they were driving. It was the other driver's fault. They're now like reliving this experience of the accident. Let's even say that whenever they get into the car, like they can't, they can't drive or no, let's say it this way. Uh, they can still drive, but when they go to a certain area of town or down a certain street, they they clam up. They start to like have like dissociative symptoms. They're having flashbacks. It's affecting how they drive. Um, I think for PTSD, it's not that just one side or one aspect of the person is damaged there. I think it's multiple aspects at once. But we might try to pick favorites. You might say when you're driving down the street, like, oh, my body just gets so tense um, and I just I can't drive. And I start to I phase out. Or you could say, like, man, when I start driving down this street, like I just get up all in my head and I'm just thinking it's like I'm not even there. Like different people might describe things differently. But I think treatment in that instance isn't just, well, we got to learn to keep you focused when you're driving or, oh, we got to learn to decrease your anxiety. Those are useful tools, but man, you're going to have to address spiritual, social, physical, and mental aspects of the person to remove something like PTSD. That's going to be hard work. Even the spiritual side, uh, guilt and shame is a huge part of PTSD involving like death, even just trauma in general. Uh, people tend to, according to studies I was looking at in the DSM, um, there tends to be a ton of guilt and shame involved with PTSD um, and even acute trauma disorder, I think is what's called, uh, which is like essentially it can develop into PTSD. I think it has to be shorter than six months. Um, so that's a whole spiritual aspect. A lot of people will say like my life has no meaning anymore or, you know, there's no point to this. I will always be a damaged individual. Like those are those are spiritual things and you can't just get the person to work on their breathing and sleep more to fix that, uh, that will help for sure. Like if we're not getting enough sleep, that will affect your mental state and your spiritual state. But, but it's going to take kind of everything healing to heal, um, PTSD. I, the, the mental image I'm getting right now is like kind of imagine like a blanket, you know, we've got the four corners and at each of the corners, that's your spiritual, your physical, your relational, and your um, mental. I might have repeated, but you've been listening long enough. You know the four things we're talking about. Um, that's like your whole – like those are the aspects of yourself, but you are the blanket itself. And so if I drop a bowling ball into that blanket, it's going to sag like straight down the middle – 
But as the corners rise and fall, that's going to shift where the weight is going. Mm. So you might have the weight really sitting heavy on one corner and think like, oh, the problem is this. Like, but then your other, the other sides of yourself might help alleviate that weight or might even be contributing to how it's sitting on the other side. I don't know if that's making sense. Yeah, no, that, that, that does make sense for sure. It's not like, it's not to say in that, you know, blanket analogy that just wherever you feel it, wherever you feel the pain the most is the worst, but it's the combination of how they all interact that it kind of like moves and glides around that. Yep. And that determines what's hurting, but it also determines where the healing is and where like healing can come from too. Um, I also love that literally the phrase like in that blanket analogy sounds like I'm doing some very vague, (laughs) ambiguous covers everything analogy, (laughs) but it's literally just a blanket analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I mean, I don't think I, I really don't think it was PTSD. And of course we talk like every week about not self-diagnosing yourself, but I've been in one car accident. Wasn't my fault. I was sitting sitting at a light, just waiting my turn to go, and I got hit head on. And it was an intersection that right by work that I would go through multiple times every day. And after that accident, just getting hit, like I said, head on, you know, the guy was going going pretty pretty fast. After that, the next time I pulled up to that intersection, it was something like an experience I've never really had before or since where my body just did not want to turn the steering wheel in that intersection. Mm. And it was like I was separate from myself. Like you you were saying at the beginning, watching myself, I wasn't afraid. If you would have asked me, no fear at all, I, I didn't even consciously think twice about it. But just as I pulled into the intersection, it was time to turn left. I almost remember like almost like warm fuzzies and my body just like not hmm. wanting. I had to make myself turn through the intersection. But that's an example of the kind we're talking about where it's like, OK, well, hey, in that case, my head was probably right. Like there's no reason to assume that every time I go through this intersection, I'm going to get in a wreck like that. But mm. that's just that's the way I felt. I don't. It was a really weird. But mean. Experience. But meanwhile, at the same time, your nervous system. I'm I'm guessing this is what the warm fuzzies were. Maybe your nervous system is shooting blood to your hands and to your feet and to your limbs, and not to your head because it's like we're gonna we have to get out of here. Mm. Yeah. And so is that sorry, I'm trying to think about this. It's it's sending it. My body's sending blood to my limbs because that's where my body thinks the blood needs to go. But that's not to say that my brain is like trying to shut down in that moment, is it? Um, no. And that's where like more modern brain studies are kind of confuddling <laughs> the body and the mind as like two separate ideas. Cause like there is like the conscious thinking part of your brain that for instance, is allowing me to say the sentence. Um, But there's also like, you know, the nervous system programmed part of my brain. that's making sure I don't suffocate while I'm talking. Um, And I think like in the intersection example, your nervous system is doing fight or flight, which I heard it, there's like more quadrants to that now. It's like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. I'm not sure what fawn means, um, but your body is essentially like it sounds like it picked like fight or flight. Um, I don't know what your response there was, but your conscience self is like, I'm not scared of getting into another accident. I've gone through this intersection a bunch of times. But your nervous system that's responsible for making sure you don't die is like, uh, I don't know if brain's aware of this, but like. I'm going to make sure body's ready to go. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there is there is so much. Like I am a big believer and proponent that there's there's just so much to us and to our minds that we don't understand yet or I'm not even saying that like science doesn't understand it although I think that's true. I'm just saying that we as individuals don't understand ourselves that well, which goes back to your point at the beginning of not being not being too hasty to like chop ourselves up into these different sections and like assign value to the really important parts and throw away the not important parts by our own valuing. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's why I've been trying to figure out how to have that conversation without sounding like someone having like a schizophrenic rant or something. <laughs> like, we're more than just our brains, but also more than just our hearts, you know? Like, that's just kind of how I feel when I write my discussion posts. Yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the struggle is like knowing <laughs> you you feel something so strongly but you feel it more than your ability to say it and then you've got to mm-hmm. kind of mine that out uh so should i should what about I, you though yeah jump in um so i before we were recording was just in spanish class so I'm glad you went Ooh. first because that kind of gives my mind time to shift back into not even shift back into English, but just like catch a breath from trying to learn another language. But what I am studying this week is I'm kind of looking into the difference between archetypes and stereotypes. This hmm. is like very I've said this last couple episodes. I'm looking at very. Uh, elementary just basic level stuff but it's because i'm trying to answer a certain question and i just don't feel like i've found the answer yet and so anyway archetypes and stereotypes uh i guess i'll ask you first do you feel like you know the difference between the two i feel like no (laughs) like i know that they're different words I would probably be able to use them in sentences in different ways, but to sit down and have them right next to each other and try to define both of them. I don't think I could do it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of how when my professor uh, brought them up, I kind of had the same reaction. I was like, oh, you know what? That's probably the first time I've heard those two words used in a sentence. I've definitely heard them both, but I've never I've never considered that they're even related at all. So it's it's uh, basically a stereotype. If we start with that one, when you're stereotyping somebody, it is kind of an oversimplification. It is making assumptions about somebody often based off of a trait they have or a group that they belong to. And the key word just being like simplifying or oversimplifying. Like the thing that stereotypes don't remember is that people are complex. We all are. And so if you have a stereotype, like, you know, the dumb jock would be a great uh, example. It's like, There's an assumption when you see somebody that if they're a jock, then they're dumb. Or I guess if I put it into the context of writing, if you're writing a character and this character is a jock, you might be tempted to just stereotype them to do what everybody has always has already seen before, which is like, oh, well, they're a jock, so they're dumb. Or another example, like uh, the wise sage, you know. I am writing this character who is going to be the guide for the hero. And so obviously they have a white beard and they're very like demure and they never show any, any sense of humor or anything like that. Those are stereotypes. They're Gandalf, they're Dumbledore, they're Professor X. Right. And 
you know, not to get into like movie characters that I haven't seen, but I imagine if you watch uh, like Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is probably he probably defies stereotype in some way. So there's hmm. there's probably if I had to bet, there's some point in the movie. We get it. You took a C.S. Lewis class. <laughs> well, is you it, like C.S. Lewis? You are our token. Like, uh, sorry, this this is me to totally. This, is, not this is me totally. This is me totally backtracking because I was going to make fun of you uh, for liking C.S. Lewis. You know, the author of Lord of the Rings, and then realizing, <laughs> oh, whoops, <laughs> I uh, that's that's stupid. <laughs> I. It's okay. So the thing is, I am applying for this program over the summer and it only has like you, they offer probably, I don't know, 12 classes or so, but you pick two classes and you give them first and second options. So really I I had to give them four classes I'd be interested in. Anyway, one of them is J.R.R. Tolkien and I put it on the list because I thought it was one of the better options, but at the same time, the part of me that's very like image conscious is like, dude, it's so lame. The, the thought of taking a class on uh, not just C.S. Lewis, but J.R.R. Tolkien. It's kind of weird, but covering all, anyway, the, go know, all the authors. Yeah. Yeah. All the, uh, what did they call themselves? The inklings. That was their writer's group where they got together. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm, like I'm a going writer's, further. Sounds like a writer's gang. Yeah, but I'm gonna I'm gonna back out of this cringe rabbit hole and go back to uh, so Gandalf. <laughs> Gandalf, I would bet if you watch the movie, there are some times where he either like says something really funny, or he he does something unexpected. Maybe you know you expect him to be really patient. But he just kind of like snaps and gives like a quick reaction. Oh, yeah. And that is in the very beginning, the very beginning, the scene where he where Bilbo's like, what if I just keep it? You just want it for yourself. And then Bilbo goes all like turns the room dark and looks terrifying and says. Yeah, don't tempt me. Yeah, exactly. So what that is, that is like kind of breaking out of the stereotype. So it doesn't mean that that. Gandalf isn't allowed to have a beard. It just means that good writing isn't going to like limit people and oversimplify them just because, because of that. But then that's stereotypes going over to archetypes. An archetype is more of a, like it it sort of exists above the the rest and above the characters, if that makes sense. I, that sounds very vague, but an archetype is almost something to like step up into. And you know what? As I'm saying this, that's not even the best way to describe it. What an archetype is, it is based on this, like, I think it was Carl Jung, his theory that there are certain just universal truths like wired into us and we recognize them. And so according to this theory, and I don't know if it it was young or somebody else, somebody said that there's really only 12 archetypes and I don't even know. I couldn't list all 12. I'm saying that to say that an archetype is like a universal character that you recognize it when you see. So examples would be the hero who wins against all odds. And you can be watching a movie and you just kind of see something in somebody where you're like, okay, yes, they're, they're the hero. And they could be young or old. They could be male or female. It's not really about like stereotypical traits. It's about archetypal. They, they are somebody. Or another example could be like an anti-hero or, or again, even, even the wise sage that having a, a wise sage that could be a stereotype, but it can also be an archetype in the sense that 
every story, just like human existence, there's going to be somebody who helps you along the way and they impart the lessons that they've learned. And so an archetype is more of these universal uh, kind of through lines. That's not even the, I mean, okay, so it ends in type. So I guess that's the best way to, to summarize it. Um, so is, if I can take a crack at it, is it like yeah. archetype is when you go into like a burger joint, you know, subconsciously or consciously or whatever, you know that there's going to be a burger. So you start to expect to see it. Like you see the the little square container and you're like, oh, there's a burger in there. In the same way, you watch a story where the main character seems very juvenile and maybe they're they're as a watcher. You're like, man, this character isn't really awake to what they need to be awake to in order to make it through this quest. You start to expect the the wise sage to show up to direct them. So the burger example is a little hard because that's, I mean, I know what you're saying, but it's not universal. Like the experience of walking into a Burger King is not like a universal human experience, but you bring up a really good point, which is that it doesn't just have to be people. So I'll give you a couple more examples and tell me if you like recognize these. If you're watching a movie and the character has been struggling. They've been confronted with something that they need to change. And suddenly it cuts to a new scene and there's a body of water. Like just hearing that, does that ring any bells? Hmm. It seems so, like a familiar scene, but yeah, it's not ringing bells. Yeah. Well, no, that's that's all it needs to do. But it feels like familiar. it feels like it leaves leaves room for thought. You know, it makes it seem like that person's got to like dive deep and figure some stuff out. Yeah, dive deep, or I think the the archetype would be uh, baptism. So when you're reading a book and they the characters go to a body of water they're about to be reborn or oh. you know another example like if you are again you're watching a film and they're in whatever scene doesn't really matter but then it cuts to a shot where you know you see a horizon and you see a single tree with two characters under it like your your soul kind of expects that there's going to be a deal made under that tree like when you mm. see that shot you're not expecting that you're going to zoom past the tree and there's going to be something interesting happening you know 50 feet away like you're expecting uh a covenant to be made a lot of this stuff traces back to like biblical uh examples too so those are sort of more archetypes they can be characters they can be things but they're just sort of universal patterns that it's actually i'm glad that you said you kind of like halfway resonated with something seeming familiar but you didn't totally understand it and i think that's kind of it it's like if this this theory is true there are these sort of like universal streams within us, things that we just recognize, they resonate, whether we like consciously understand them or not. Hmm. And where that. So I said that I'm studying. I'm looking into this with reference to a question I'm asking that question that I'm asking. I think maybe we've referenced this on a couple of the episodes. I'm doing that independent study that is kind of along the question of character. And mm -hmm. I guess 
I guess I, I, I kind of said I'm circling it and every week I feel like I get closer to what I'm looking for. I'm still, I'm still trying to articulate it, but the question of like, why in our culture does it seem like we've like just run out of having character, you know, like it, the idea of if I were going to step up and say like, you know what guys character is important and we're going to start a movement of people who have good character like that. Just saying that kind of feels weird. Doesn't feel like Mm -hmm. it lands, you know, that's at least kind of my read on the situation. And I guess what I'm trying to get to is. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll say it this way. My professor thinks that, that stereotypes and archetypes are kind of the, the answer to what I'm looking for. And so maybe it's in the sense of we don't want to stereotype people. Stereotyping people is bad, but it's kind of a baby with the bathwater situation where there are these universal, these universal, uh archetypes and in the past there were like you know you'd hear a story and there were characters you wanted to be like and characters you didn't want to be like so you would you would see the hero you would want to be like them and that may have kind of pulled your heart towards developing the character traits that a person like that would have um you know even just that saying it i kind of like the way i said that the traits a person like a hero would have. And you would also Mm. see a story where there's the character who only cares about power and money for themselves. And so, you know, consciously or unconsciously, you would try not to embody the traits that a person like that has. But I guess sort of the possible hypothesis is like, by trying to not stereotype people, we've also thrown out any sense of like pattern recognition, even just to the point of like, here's what a good person is. And as I'm saying this, you know, I'm clearly still sort of circling it. I don't know exactly where that goes. And I don't think even that that's the exact question I'm trying to answer, but that's getting a little closer. So I mean, I mean, I don't know. What I, do you I think? hear. Well, I hear like a resonation resignation. That's not even a word. Um, what you're saying now is resonating with something we talked about a long time ago, which is like the idea of like postmodernism, like. Is character. Valued in a postmodern world where most people. Are kind of just like throwing their hands up or shrugging to the idea of the wider world or the wider community. I mean, that's not necessarily true because there's obviously a lot of people very passionate about a lot of things, but at the same time, I think there's this prevailing sense of like individualism. Like I got to watch out for me and I got to watch out for myself and I got to help myself to succeed and even like overly succeed like at all points, like, yeah, as we're, you know, not recording this, maybe a couple of weeks ago, you know, Andrew Tate got locked up, but he got real big for being as kind of wacky as he is um, because he Can portrayed I? that kind of life. Huh? Well, no, sorry. I shouldn't cut you off. Go ahead. Well, no, just, you know, he, he kind of pitches that kind of lifestyle of, you know, Get big, work hard, you know, suck it up, live fast, die hard. The Matrix is real. It's after me. You know, he kind of uh, portrays that lifestyle. And there's a lot of people who really latched onto that. Yeah. Yeah. So what I was going to say is this is going to there's a very small portion of you listening who are going to understand why this is so funny. But me and Rich were talking a couple weeks ago and he said something like, I I don't know if you remember this. You're like, 
did you see that news about Michael Tate being arrested? And I was like, what? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, Michael Tate. They like, you know, jumped. They uh, swarmed in on his home in like whatever country. And I was like losing my mind. And then I don't know who realized that we were talking about Andrew Tate, not Michael Tate. So <laughs> that made me laugh. Uh, but I think that, you know, what you're the example you're giving actually kind of points out the problem, which is that he for all of his things that he said that were like really awful, like his kind of stated goal is to give people something to aspire to. And, you know, I, you really have to separate those two things, like what he said he was doing and what he was actually doing. But I think that, but even there's a problem too, with what you're with what you're saying is like even if his goal was to give somebody to give people some like somebody to aspire to, he's saying I'm what you should aspire to be like. Me and nine women in a room and being like this like aggressive guy who kind of. I've seen a couple of things where he's talking about business, just flat out manipulates people and promotes it. Cause that's, you know, being good business sense. He's, he's saying aspire to be me. He's saying I am character at that point. Yes. And I like, absolutely like what he teaches or kind of like what he promotes is like gross. So Zero percent. I'm glad that we're calling it out. I feel like enough people aren't calling him out. Well, that's why we're uh, such a small podcast is because we're we're coming here with the with the hard hitting facts. (laughs) But I guess going back to like I'm evaluating the language. What I'm getting at is like he is saying aspire to blank. And however you fill in that blank, like when the human heart hears aspire to like people are going to latch onto it. And that's evidenced by the fact that they did, that he blew up and got this massive following. Now, what you're saying is that the things he was saying to aspire to are bad. We agree on that. But like once Andrew Tate is out of the picture, there aren't a lot of big cultural figures like saying, hey, guys, aspire to blank. You know, like in Mm -hmm. the past, I feel like if you rewind 10, 20, 30 years, uh, even even when you picture like kind of the madman, madman era of like corporate uh, culture. I wasn't there, so maybe I'm just picking this out of movies and TV and stuff. But in the past, there was like. Aspire to. uh be rich, you know, like that was, that's the American dream is aspire to uh, collect wealth and have a big house and a nice car and all of that. You know, same thing there. We can say that that's not a great thing to aspire to, but it's called like the American dream for a reason. It was like a, it was a collective thing that we were all trying to be. And Again, yeah, right now, I just don't think that there really is a dream. And if there's no dream, like if there's no thing to aspire to, uh, that doesn't leave people in a great place. And again, like what I'm not saying is that Andrew Tate was doing anything good, but I'm like, I'm evaluating this in terms of the question I'm trying to answer for this potential book. Like that, that is the question, like. Is there something to aspire to? Is there a common dream that we could all have that would give us a basis to to try to live in a certain direction? I don't know if I'm if I'm being clear at all in what I'm saying. No, I think there's something there. You're saying like so launching off of the Michael Tate thing. If he's saying Michael Tate, there I'm again <laughs> launching off of the Andrew Tate thing. Um he's saying I'm something to aspire to, but what is the wider? What does our culture hold as valuable to aspire to? And is character 
found inside that. Like, is that kind of what you're saying? Like character is something that's intrinsically tied to the wider values of a group of people. Well, I think here's, here's the answer as I was kind of reading about it this morning. I'm reading this, like this might be really kind of high-minded and academic, but excuse me. Um, I think that the, the common philosophies of our day are like critical theory, which is all about power. So I guess I'll just pause on that one for a second. So hmm. critical theory is like, I, I, I don't know how familiar you are with it, but like I said, it's all about power. It's about, um, ways it's about evaluating ways that like people in power and institutions like oppress the little guy and Mm -hmm. calling attention to that critiquing it trying to uh do something about it like the idea of critical theory is that people don't just have people problems they have institutional problems power problems and cultural problems power problems exactly yeah and so the goal the goal is kind of to to uh man i really i'm losing the train of thought as i'm saying it but point being that is something that i feel like culturally like that's all that twitter is is like wait wait, if i if i could interrupt yeah It sounds like, okay, so as I'm thinking about character, it sounds like in a critical power conscious point of view, to have character is to be like, is to stand up for the little guy. Like someone with character is someone who is willing to stand up against power for the little guy. Possibly that that could be true. I think that the the like ultimate form of critical theory truly believes, like I said, that people don't have people problems, though. So in critical theory, I don't like character is kind of a non issue. Because people don't have people problems. People are good. People are fine. It's the the consequences that they were born into that are the problem. And so, yeah, but at, to that point as well, though, like, and I might be wrong, I'm not studying this out, but it seems like to me, when I think about, if I take a collection of people who care about, you know, critical theory, they are going to aspire to be like someone. Like they maybe they're not actively involved or doing as much as they should, but all of those people in their mind have a character who they want to live up to. Maybe it's Jim. Jim's out there and he's always, you know, he goes and he he protests when it's necessary for good causes or he has been, you know, he went and stood up for somebody and he got just like beat up for it. Like they all say, I want to be like Jim because Jim's got character because in our value system, character is these things. Yeah, I you might be like that is a that's not a bad point that isn't a bad point at all i think the dilemma that it sets up though and this is my broader question with character as it relates to you know this example of like critical theory so if you if you have this outlook of life the the worst thing you could be is to be the oppressor. So mm-hmm. if you if you take it to, you know, the ultimate extension of this line of thought and if you kind of put everybody into two buckets, oppressor and oppressed, you know, what you're saying is a person of character would be somebody who's oppressed who stands up to the oppressor. But it seems like you know, one line of thinking could be that 
that very binary way of looking at it that I'm looking out. It's kind of like the whole, you know, you either die a hero or you live long enough to Mm. become the villain. Because, you know, you are the little guy and it's wrong that you're being held down. But also, if you ever escape being held down, you're no longer the little guy and you're oppressing somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I think that that line of thinking, which is maybe not super charitable to you know, critical theory, and I'm I'm not trying to like straw man it or anything, but I think that that's why you can have like really, really intellectual people, really online people who are really just like plugged into online discourse sort of stuff. I think that's why you can have people kind of go crazy, is because you you start to read into every action like how you could be oppressing people. And and I don't even really want to say it that way. I guess it's just, I guess what I'm getting at is like, I don't think that that theory offers a super compelling hero, a super compelling dream, Mm -hmm. which is the question we're getting back to. I'm, I'm kind of tiptoeing around this a little bit because I'm, I'm only starting my research and I don't want to be unfair, but that's like what I, that's the question I'm asking is like, does, that way of thinking does it give any basis for somebody to want to be a person of character and i think the answer right now for me is like i don't know but so that's kind of what i'm doing with this research is i'm kind of like looking through what i think are dominant philosophies that we have dominant worldviews and asking the question posing the question like hey are any of these why it's really hard to talk about character it almost sounds like it's so hard to define character because we have like characters now. Yes. Which like, let me explain what that means. Um, there's no like wider set um, of what it means to be like, there's no overarching covers everyone's sense of what it means to be good. Um, yeah. And as that wider sense, almost like a glass mirror has been shattered to reflect what's good. You know, it's created all these little fragments that don't quite get it, but can get close. Like a, like critical theory. There's some things in it that are good and that a person of character should, should reflect some of these things. But it's yeah. just that character. And that's where, like, it gets you far enough to commit to it because there's good in it, but it doesn't get you all the way. And then you have, like, another theory over here, and it gets you far enough, but it won't get you all the way. But without having the full, complete picture, we're kind of just left to have to pick what fragment of mirror. Ooh, someone's going real fast. Um we're just left with this frag, these fragmented little reflections of glass um, to try to fit all of goodness into. And it kind of just, like you said, if it's critical theory, you know, from what you've seen so far in your opinion, or maybe it's not even your opinion, just from this discourse, you might find yourself doing things of character, standing up for the little guy, but then you get to, you get to a point where that reaches its conclusion. And now you're the big guy. I don't know. Yeah, very much. Because like, I want to kind of reiterate something you're saying, which is, I'm not a person who like scapegoats critical theory. I think it's a lens. I think it's a tool. I'm very critical of big business, big pharma. Like I, yes, like the people in power oppress the little guy. I don't even think that like that goes without saying. So it's not something that should be thrown out. And also I'm what I'm not saying is that that adults who've lived some life and who kind of see things through the lens of critical theory, I'm not saying that those people can't have character. 
I'm not saying if you see the yeah. world this way, you don't have character. That's actually because remember, the question I asked is not about having character. It's about teaching and instilling character. Mm. And an adult can can have character because they've lived some life and they've been charactered. But then that adult might have a child. And again, this is kind of an extreme, annoying example, but maybe it's not that extreme. Like an adult can have a child and say, well, I'm not going to teach them not to lie because that's a tiny human. I'm not going to control them. I'm not going to indoctrinate them. So I'm not going to teach them not to lie. I'm not going to teach them how to steal. And so it's a weird thing where like the adult might have the character, but they're so afraid of exerting any power even over their own child that that's where you see like the crazy examples again i'm kind of i'm i feel like i'm sort of arguing in bad faith but if you're talking about the extreme examples that's where you have the parent who like just literally cannot tell their child no because in their mind they're like so They've they've wired themselves just That's to see oppressive. the oppressor oppressed dynamic in everything. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So I'm curious to see how the study turns out. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, I keep circling it and every week I feel like I get closer to what it is I'm trying to say. But I don't know. We'll We'll see where it goes. But. You said interesting, which pretty much means that uh, I think my turn is up. I did the same thing to you. <laughs> That's kind of like the uh, transitional word. So That's our secret code here. I guess <laughs> is yeah. if you hear interesting, you're done. <laughs> One of the first couple episodes when we were editing it, I was listening through at like 2x speed or whatever to find clips. And it was so painful just hearing us back and forth being like, interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> now we only say it twice per episode. Exactly. You we're say it once, it I say it once, and then we're done. And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you guys on the next one.